Okay, good morning everyone, Fredlich and Hanukkah. I want to thank our uh, sponsors this morning. This morning's shir is generously co-sponsored by Suri Weisfeld Spolter and family in honor of her husband Mordechai Spolter's 40th birthday. By Bryna Weinberger to commemorate the 28th year at site of her father, Liloy Nishmas Mordechai ben Avram Alter. And uh, who was a nechad at Tosus Yantif. Okay, and anonymously in memory of Rachel Leah Bas Avigail. So thank you very much to our sponsors. A quick word about Hanukkah and the end of Hanukkah, Zos Hanukkah, and then we'll get into our parsha Vayigash. Tonight is the last night of Hanukkah, and sadly for many people, as Hanukkah continues, it grows old. The first night there's excitement, there's build up, there's anticipation, setting up the menorah, getting the family together, and eight nights by the eighth candle, it can get old. But our tradition teaches us the opposite, that actually the eighth night, what was known in uh, particularly Hasidic literature as Zos Hanukkah, the laning tomorrow morning begins, Zos Hanukkah Samizbeah, Zos Hanukkah, the eighth night, this is the culmination, this is the essence, this is Hanukkah, it's not the least of the nights, it is actually the culmination, it is the greatest of the nights. So tonight, one should not run out of their energy and excitement, but really should come with a renewed sense of enthusiasm and vigor to the end of Hanukkah. Both according to Beis Hillel and Beis Shammai, tonight's the night. Whether you're counting up towards the eighth night or you begin with eight and count down, this is the culmination. This is, this is really what it's all about. We've shared before, the Maral explains that in fact Hanukkah is brought to us by the number eight. Like uh, Sesame Street, Hanukkah is brought to you by the number eight. We sing in Mo's Sur, we say, B'nai Vina, men of great understanding, established Hanukkah, people of great insight. And how did they establish it? Yemei Shmona. Not Shmona Yamim, not eight days, but Yemei Shmona. Days of the number eight. The Maral beautifully explains seven is nature, the natural order, the natural world. Eight is one above nature, the supernatural. The essence of this Yantav, of this holiday of Hanukkah that we've been experiencing, the light of the menorah is to illuminate and enable us to see what's under our nose all along. That even that which looks natural, even that which looks ordinary, is in fact supernatural, is in fact extraordinary. Even the things that look like random or chance or coincidence, we expect them, we anticipate them, we've come to see them as normal, routine. The purpose of Hanukkah is to break that sense of hergel, the routine and the pattern, and to break this habit of seeing things as ordinary. Hanukkah is a time, the light of the menorah enables us to see just how extraordinary our lives really are, the blessings and the miracles that we have. That's symbolized by the number eight. The rest of the world lives within seven. They live within nature. We are above nature. We live within eight. And therefore, Zos Hanukkah, the eighth night, is particularly profound, particularly powerful. All eight candles, this is... All of Hanukkah is Yemei Shmona. Each day of Hanukkah is brought by the number eight. But this is the culmination. This is really the eighth night. So we should be getting ready for tonight and tomorrow. People light the candles tonight and then by tomorrow they forgot it's Eis Hanukkah. Not Zos Hanukkah, it's Eis Hanukkah. They think it's Hanukkah's over. Hanukkah's not over. Toshkiah tomorrow. Tomorrow is Zos Hanukkah. It is uh, the halal and hodah, that sense of gratitude and deep appreciation for the miracles by Amim Ahemu, not only in those days, but in our time, that continues through tomorrow. Parshas Vayigash, page 250, in the art scroll, Stone Chumash. Parshas Vayigash, the suspense of the story has built up. And of course, none of you know what's going to happen in this week's Parsha. It's incredible. The final test, last week, in Yosef, accuses Binyamin of having stolen from him. And this is the great confrontation. Here is the great conflict between Yosef and Yehuda. Yehuda is going to emerge courageous, a leader, bold, and he confronts his brother, not knowing it's his brother Yosef, saying, no, no more. I can't stand idly by. I can't be passive to the plight of my brothers. Yehuda steps up and Yehuda tries to intercede. We're going to come back and study this part intensely. So let's do the overview of the parsha, and then come all the way back to the beginning. Yehuda confronts Yosef, and Yosef can't take it anymore. Why exactly couldn't he take it? What could he not take anymore? He's unable to continue to conceal his identity. The charade is over. The gig is up. He has to tell them who he is. Why? 
What compelled him? What was he unable to hold back anymore? That's what we're going to talk about. So Yosef reveals himself to the brothers. Very courageous move, by the way. What does he do before he reveals himself? He excuses everyone from the room. He says, can I have the room? And why did he do that? We'll see. We're going to study in a moment why he did that. But it was a risky move. His brothers have a history of what with him? Violence. They kidnapped him, they stripped him, they threw him in a pit. And he puts himself alone. He tells the guards, his security apparatus, he tells his cabinet, his advisors, leave us alone, give me the room. And when he's going to say, I'm Yosef, they could lynch him. They could jump on him. It takes a certain amount of courage, and yet he does it. Why? To protect and preserve their dignity. He doesn't want to humiliate them in front of others. And see from here, say Chazal, how far we have to go in order to protect the dignity of others. What's extraordinary here is how far he goes not to protect the dignity of an average person. He's protecting the dignity of a group of people who tried to kill him. And yet, he is so gracious and so generous and so um, has such discipline that he has the wherewithal, the self-awareness, the mindset to clear the room, to say, leave me alone. Because that's how far he goes. We see this with Yehuda and Tamar. When Tamar is willing to be thrown into the Kibshan Ha'esh, Tamar is willing to suffer capital punishment, the death penalty, before she will reveal Yehuda and embarrass him. What do both of these cases have in common? The righteousness, the justice, is with the person who nevertheless tried to protect the perpetrator. Tamar had every right to reveal Yehuda. Yosef had every right to confront his brothers in front of the others. Yet, despite being in the position of righteousness and justice, that's how far they went in order to protect someone from being embarrassed, from being humiliated. Because if you embarrass somebody, Malbim is from the word love on its white. What happens when you embarrass someone? The blood rushes to their face and then drains. They go white, pale, humiliated, embarrassed, ashamed. You've broken them. You've killed them. You, Tamar goes to that extent. And here, Yosef risks his own life, not knowing how his brothers will react. But still, why? So, so why did Yosef do it? Why did Tamar do it? If really they were in the position of what was just, why'd they do it? The answer is when we protect somebody else from being embarrassed, are we doing it for them or are we doing it for ourselves? We're not doing it for the other person. They may be undeserving of it. So why do we do it? Because we need to not be the vehicle or the instrument for having humiliated someone else. Even if they deserve it. The Ribbona Sholem wants them humiliated. He'll orchestrate things for them to be embarrassed. But we don't need to be that puppet, that instrument to embarrass them. So Tamar goes to that great extent and so does Yosef. Not necessarily to preserve the dignity of the other for them. They're undeserving. But for ourselves. It's important for us to remember sometimes we're bruised, our ego. We're hurt. We're damaged financially in a real way by someone else and their behavior. And we're tempted to lash out. We're tempted to embarrass them and humiliate them publicly. And the, the, to remember that it's unbecoming, it's pastished. We, we lessen ourselves. It's undignified for us, even if they're deserving of it, let Hashem give it to them another way. Yosef reveals himself, Paro joins in the welcome, he introduces the brothers. Yosef's worlds are colliding here. How long has he been alienated from his family? 22 years. 22 years is a long time. It's not two and a half years, it's not two months, it's not two weeks. 22 years is a generation, it's a lifetime. And here his past and his presence are present are merging. And he must have been very proud to make these introductions, to show his brothers how far he has come and who he is today, and to show who he is today, where he came from. And that he in fact does have a family, because for 22 years, we don't know if Paro ever asked him, you know, Yosef, is your family visiting? Are they coming to see you? Are they coming for your special birthday? Are they coming for your wedding to Asnas? What, what's, where's your family? We don't know. But finally, Paro is a, Yosef is able to introduce Paro to his family and introduce his family to where he comes from. He gives gifts to everybody. A famous question. 
Who does he give more gifts to? Binyamin. And the question is famously asked. Everyone else he gave five outfits, five changes of clothing. Binyamin, he threw in 300 shekel kesef, 300 meros kesef. He threw in some cash. Why did he throw in the cash? Has Yosef not learned the lesson that favoring does not have a good outcome, does not turn out well? Why would Yosef favor Binyamin? True, he shares the same mother. The others are brothers from another mother. Binyamin is his only brother from the same mother. But again, favoring one brother over others is how he got into this problem to begin with. What is he thinking for another time? Yaakov now is informed. If one thing you've learned in this class, it's that we have limited time and we never get to anything we wanted to talk about. Yaakov is now informed. That we've talked about in the past too. Serach ben Asher, Asher is the one who plays the harp, tells Yaakov how Yaakov becomes informed so he doesn't drop dead from the news. Even though Yaakov was Shamar Sadavar, he had never given up hope of being reunited with his son. And uh, he makes his way down. Yaakov makes his way down with 70 descendants. They arrive in Mitzrayim, in Egypt. Yosef ensures that they settle in Goshen. First of all, how is, how is Yaakov told? There's a hint, there's an allusion here in the text. In the beginning of... Where is this? Yeah, Pasuk Chavzayin. Perak Memvav, Pasuk Chavzayin. Chapter 46, verse... 26. That's the wrong Pasuk. I'm sorry. Perak Mem Vav Pasuk Chavzayim. Where am I reading? By Daberi Love is called Diveri Yosef Asher Diberi Alayim Vayaras Agalos Asher Shalach Yosef. I'm sorry, Perak Mem Hey. Mem Hey Chavzayim. It's page 256. They told, they related to him all the words Yosef had told him to tell. And when did Yaakov believe it? When he saw the wagons that Yosef had sent. Yaakov's spirit returned. You ever see somebody who's lost a child, there's a piece of them which is gone. They're never the same. Yaakov's spirit is restored. Yaakov comes back into himself. What caused him to believe? What made Yaakov come back to himself? Not the words. What was it? Seeing the wagons. What was it about seeing the wagons? So Rashi famously tells us, This was a sign. It was a symbol. What were Yaakov and Yosef, whose souls were intertwined, what were they studying and learning? What was Yaakov transmitting to Yosef when this episode happened that Yaakov said, go check on your brothers and next thing you know, 22 years later, what were they learning? Pashas Egla Arufa, the story of the Egla Arufa. So therefore, when Yaakov saw the Agalos that Yosef had sent wagons, Yaakov said, oh, that's the hint. That's how I know it's him. I have a friend, someone in the shul, who is so paranoid about spam and email, when you forward him an article, unless you say something in the subject line that lets him realize that it's really from you, he won't open it. So you have to say something, allusion to something you've experienced together, conversation you recently had, something about you, about him. You gotta put a hint in the email or he won't open the attachment because he's so paranoid that it's going to be spam. Yaakov is not believing. 22 years he's longed, he's held out. What causes him to accept, in fact, Yosef's alive? Oh, Yosef said all this. Oh, and he also wanted you to know he sent these wagons. Yaakov says, wagons? Oh, that's where we left off. My book is still open. The Chumash is still open to the Egla Rufa. That's what we were learning 22 years ago when the episode unfolded. So the simple understanding of Rashi is, it's a cute illusion. Yosef came up with a cute hint. What do we have in common? What do only Yaakov and I know that others don't know? That we were learning Egla Rufa. That's why he sent him the Egla Rufa. But Rabbi Salavetrik and his Chumash says no. There was a much more significant message that was being communicated here. What was it? Listen to what he writes. Why did Yaakov overcome his initial skepticism only after he saw the wagons? Rashi suggests as evidence it was indeed Yosef who sent the message. Yosef instructed the brothers to tell Yaakov at the time he left they were studying Egla Rufa. What are the laws of Egla Rufa? They're the laws pertaining to the heifer whose neck is broken. 
the phrase should be interpreted as, and he saw the calves that Yosef had sent. In reality, the wagons themselves were sent by Paro, not by Yosef. The law of Egla Arufa involves the Jewish concept of leadership, leader's responsibility. In the event of an unsolved murder, the elders of the city that is closest to the corpse is obligated to bring a, a, uh, an Egla into a rough valley or brook. There they break the neck of the, of the heifer and say, our hands, our hands did not shed this blood. The Mishnah raises the question, is it conceivable these venerable elders would actually shed blood? I mean, think about it for a moment. A corpse is found. It's between cities. We don't know who the murderer is. We don't even know where he came from. How are we going to solve this murder? With a tape measure. We take the tape measure out and we measure which city he's closest to, this corpse. And then we drag the elders of that city with the walkers and the wheelchairs. We take them out of the base medrash. We remove them from their basedin where they're paskening. We take them out of the physical therapy. And we say, come, elders of the city. We're schlepping you to where this corpse was for this bizarre ritual where we take an animal and break its neck in a valley. And the elders of the city, part of the process, part of the ritual is that they say, we hereby admit, we hereby proclaim, we're not the murderers. There's no blood on our hands. Did anyone suspect there was blood on their hands? They could barely lift a cup of coffee. They're lifting the knife. They're lifting the axe. They couldn't exactly flee from the murder scene with a speed and alacrity and avoid the police. So this Canaan, the elders of the city have to say, we didn't lift it. What the Torah means, says the Rav, is that the elders of the community did not send this wayfarer away without food, nor did they allow him to leave the community unaccompanied. What were they really confessing? What were they admitting? What were they proclaiming? That we didn't let this individual go without Levia, without, without being malava him from our home. We see from here the great significance. It's wonderful what you serve the person at the dining room table, but did you walk them out? And the image of walking someone out is that you're not expelling them from your home into an exile of loneliness and you're on your own. Levi is really accomplished not only when you walk the person out, you send them with a goodie bag. You send them with provisions. Where's your journey? How far are you going? Do you need me to walk you there? Do you need some food for the trip, for the flight, for the train ride? What do you need? What you're showing is that you care about the person not only while they were a guest in your home, but you continue to care about their next step, their next stop, and their future. What these elders were saying is, we didn't send them unaccompanied. It's almost frightening to consider how much the Torah demands of the leader. Obviously, the leader is responsible for all his actions. His judgment must be proper, he must not accept bribes, he must act in accordance with the principles of justice and charity. In addition, however, the leader is also charged with responsibility for people and events which seem far removed from his concerns. And that's the message of the Egla Arufa. If the people of the city are not being malava, their guests out, it's on the leader's head. The leader has not educated, has not inspired them properly. Yaakov knew that Yosef was destined for power. He therefore took care to study the morality of leadership and power with Yosef. The fact that they were studying Egla Arufa meant, what were they studying? Leadership 101. The message that they were studying Egla Arufa was not esoteric halachas. They were studying leadership 101. Yaakov was now trying to determine if both his son and his disciple were still alive. A ruler of Egypt, he thought, must certainly be assimilated into the general pagan society. Yaakov could not believe that Yosef had preserved his spiritual identity and remained loyal to the teachings he had absorbed in Yaakov's household. Now when the brothers related the last lesson Yaakov and Yosef had shared, he realized Yosef remained his disciple as well as his son. He believed them that Yosef is still alive. But is it my Yosef? Is it the Yosef who sat and learned with me Bachavrusa? Is it the Yosef who soaked up the, my message, my values, my teachings? Or is Yosef alive, but it's an all new Yosef who I've never met? An assimilated Yosef. A Yosef who I don't know. Yosef is going to reciprocate this. Yaakov's suspicion, glad that Yosef is biologically alive, Yosef, the biological person, is alive, but is Yosef the personality I knew still alive? What does Yosef ask the brothers when, they, when he reveals himself? Ani Yosef ha'od avicha. First thing he says is, I'm Yosef, is, he doesn't say his father still alive. He doesn't say is our father still alive. What does he say? My father. First of all, why is that a peculiar question to ask? 
Because what did Yehuda say a moment ago? When Yehuda confronts Yosef, he says, you must send Binyamin back. I cannot go back to my father without him. My father's going to die. He's an old man. If I don't come back with Binyamin, it'll be the end of him. You must release Binyamin. Because my father, who's alive and who I cherish, I, have to, I can't come back without him. Yosef says, I can't hold back anymore. I'm Yosef. Is my father... What do you mean, is your father still alive? The whole argument Yehuda just gave was for your living father that he'll surely die if you don't get Binyamin back. So why would Yosef ask a question he knows the answer to? Elamai, what do you see? Yosef did not know the answer to his question. His question wasn't, is our father still alive? That Yehuda had just answered. What was his question? Is my father still alive? My father. I know that the old man, Yaakov, is alive. You just said that. But is the Yaakov who was nafshok shurab nafshok, whose soul was intertwined with mine, who gave me that coat, who tried to pass me the baton, transmitted to me his tradition, who cherished our relationship, who sat me on his knee and taught me everything he knew. Haod Azi is my father. Has he given up on me? Has he forgotten me? Has he turned his love and affection to someone else? Or is my father still alive? So you see that despite the 22-year separation, even when each finds out that the other is alive, that's not good enough. They don't crave to know the other is alive. They crave the love, the affection, the warmth, the relationship that they once had. Yaakov now comes down to Mitzrayim with 70 souls. And uh, he sees Yosef. And what does he say? This unusual language. Amusa Apam, Perak Memvav Pasuk Lamed, chapter 46, verse 30. Vayomer Yisrael al Yosef, Yaakov arrives, he sees Yosef, and he says, Amusa Hapa'am, Acharei Raosi Espanecha Ki Odchachai. Now I can die. Now that I've seen your face, now that I've seen you're alive, now that I know that you're okay, now I can die. Why? First of all, it's a bizarre language. And Rashi points out, what does it mean, Amusa Apam? Zakdur Rashi, Pshuto Kitarguma, Midrasha, Savra, Yisit Lama Shtei Misos, Ba'olam Azel, Ba'olam Abba, Shinestalka Mimeni Shechina. I thought I was going to die twice. Once in this world, my physical death, and once in the world to come, that I was going to die. Because the Shechina, Hashem's presence, has been taken from me. Ha'isi Omer, Shid Ba'ini HaKadosh Baruch HaMisasecha. I thought that I was responsible for your death. But now that I see you are alive, I'm only going to die once. What does that mean? How do you die once? How do you die twice? What does it mean to die more than once? What is Rashi talking about? What was Yaakov talking about? Now that I see you're alive, I can die only once. I think I mentioned this to you last year or a couple of years ago as well. What does it mean to die twice? It means that we have a physical life. We're physical beings. Our soul is housed in our body for a temporary, very finite, very fleeting period of time. 70, 80, 90. Yesterday I saw a friend of mine from New York who came down. He was visiting his grandfather. He was at the next table. He introduced me. He came down for his grandfather's 99th birthday. I said, wow. His grandfather looked Kanai Nahara, robust, healthy. He said, oh yeah, he still drives. <laughs> drives, he's active, he's unbelievable. 99, Kenai Nahara, 99 years old, Book Raton, the fountain of youth. So you have, on the one hand, you have a physical life. Some people, 99, 120 years old. Or Shainman Zatzal, 104 years old. The soul is housed in the body. If we're lucky, on average, Tehillim tells us 70 years. If we're really lucky, 104 plus years. And a soul is extracted from the body, the body goes back to the earth, and the soul goes back upstairs. But we have another life, which is our immortal life, our eternal life. And that is the status of our soul in perpetuity. Where exactly are we sitting in the great Colosseum upstairs? Do we have a front row seat? Are we in the nosebleed section? Are we outside trying to scalp tickets to get in? Where exactly is our seat is determined by the life we led in this world. But it's determined not only by the life we led. The only way we can improve our seating in the world to come is how? When we're in the world to come, we no longer have free will. We no longer make choices. The soul exists outside of the body. 
Kaddish Baruch the Rebona Shalom is no longer concealed. He is revealed. He's accessible. It's undeniable that He's there. And therefore there's no free will. Free will only exists in a world where you could deny Hashem. And that's what makes the fact that we have choices meaningful and valuable. So what's the only way to improve your seating upstairs? How do you sneak down to a closer seat? Upstairs. The only way is the return on the investments you leave in this world. You can't make choices anymore once you get up there. That's why we've been saying in Halal every morning, Loha Nesim, Yehalaluka. We don't glorify death. We don't look forward to death. We hesitate. We push off death as much as possible. This is the world of meaning. This is where we make choices. This is where it's all about. The next world, we have the results of the choices we made here. The only way that we can move in the next world is if we invested properly in this world, you still get your dividends. You still can continue to collect on the investment. What are the investments we make in this world? Our children and our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, our neighbors, our nephews and nieces, the community, the good deeds, the impact that we had. So that when we inspired and motivated and taught people that we leave behind our legacy, and they act in a way which is a positive reflection on us, those are dividends which we reap. Yaakov Avinu says, I thought Yosef was gone. I thought I was going to die not only in this world, but the world to come. But I see that Yosef is still alive. I'm leaving a proper legacy. What did he mean by that? What was his fear about Yosef? Nebuchadnezzar, I have a child who's assimilated, who's intermarried, who moved to Egypt, who's gone, who's lost to me, whose children won't be Jewish, won't lead richly Jewish lives. And when he discovers that Yosef is still part of the program, more than program than ever, and that he's succeeding in raising Ephraim and Menashe in Egyptian culture, one of the reasons that we bless our children, not like Moshe and Aaron or Avram and Yitzchak or Yosef and the brothers, we bless them like Ephraim and Menashe is. Ephraim and Menashe are the firstborn in exile who hold on to their Judaism, who don't assimilate. And that's our dream and our wish and our bracha for our children, despite the challenges of being raised in the exile of this world, to nevertheless, like Ephraim and Menashe, hold on to their identity. The Rav writes about this. Rashi comments that Yosef died, Yaakov himself would have died twice, both in this world and the next. Yaakov's task was to raise 12 sons who would ultimately become Knesset Yisrael. Knesset Yisrael is a confluence of talents, of approaches, of thoughts, of emotion. Without all 12 components, Knesset Yisrael would never arise, and Yaakov's purpose would remain unfulfilled. He would have died in the next world. So that's what he means by Amusa Hapam. Let's finish up our overview because we're already out of time. So Yaakov comes down. Yaakov and Paro meet. We've spoken about this at length. You can listen online. It is the most pedestrian conversation you've ever seen. The leader of the spiritual world leads, meets with the leader of the world. And if you could be a fly on the wall, you would eagerly want to eavesdrop in on that conversation. What are they talking about? Solving world peace? Global warming? Economic issues? How to stop Iran? What, what were they talking about? You know what they're talking about? The conversation is as pedestrian as you can imagine. Paro says, Whoa, you look old. How old are you? Yaakov says, I look old because I've had a tough life. I'm 130, but my, my, my uh, life has been really rough. Yaakov then gives a bracha to Paro, end the conversation. We talked about at length what was really going on in that conversation. You could listen online. Yosef and the famine. Where do the brothers settle, by the way, when they come down? They settle in Goshen. Why does Yaakov steer, uh, Yosef rather steer them to Goshen? Why was it necessary for Yosef to coach his brothers? He tells the brothers, when Paro is going to ask what you do for a living, do not say that you're accountants and hedge fund managers and stockbrokers. Here's what you're going to answer him. You know what you're going to tell him? You're a shepherd. Why is Yosef coaching his brothers? Don't tell him that you're the senior partner in the law firm. Don't tell him that you're the number one doctor in Boca Raton. Don't tell him. You're a shepherd. That's what you are. Okay, let's practice. Nice to meet you. What do you do for a living? We're shepherds. Why was it so important for Yosef to coach them on what they do for a living, that they're not lawyers and doctors and accountants, they're shepherds? Says Rabbi Salavechik. Why? Paro suspected that each of Yosef's brothers was as intelligent as Yosef. He wanted to disperse them throughout the country to become asset, assets to Egyptian society. He says, if each of you are half as smart as Yosef, you're going to help the economy. I'm going to spread you out. And you're going to have this enormous impact. Lawyers and doctors and accountants, businessmen, hedge fund managers. 
Under such circumstances, Yosef feared his brothers would assimilate among the Egyptians. He instructed his brothers to tell Paro they were cattlemen and shepherds. They would not give up their vocation. It was the family tradition. Since herding sheep was frowned upon in Egyptian society, Paro would be unable to scatter them. He puts them in the suburb called Goshen. They have a Jewish settlement. They're able to live there in the Jewish ghetto. And they're able to fight off assimilation. When we live in the metropolis, when we live in the city, when we integrate in it too fully, it opens the door to assimilation. Yosef understood that. If they were to preserve their identity, they would have to settle in the suburb, create a Jewish community, and be able to, to build their own identity. Okay, let's go back to the beginning of the parasha, which is really how I want to start. And I want to start with the following thought to explain to you why it's so important to dissect and analyze and understand this passage. It's an insight from the Majitsu Rebbe. When Yosef and Binyamin finally meet, what does the Pasuk describe? Yosef and Binyamin meet, and they embrace one another. And what does the Pasuk say? Page 254. Pasuk Yedal. Yosef collapses on the neck of his brother Binyamin and cries, and Binyamin cries on Yosef's neck. So, in the simple understanding, it's a very beautiful image. These two brothers, who are brothers not only from the same father, but from the same mother, who are far apart in age, who Yosef has longed to spend time with and to want to feel he's protecting, finally are united. And what do they do? They collapse in one another in this expression of loyalty and affection and they cry on each other's neck. They're real men. They're not afraid to cry. It's a very beautiful, beautiful image. And then Rashi comes along and he ruins it. Rashi ruins it. What were they crying about? Not just two grown men in touch with their feelings who finally are releasing 22 years of anguish, who are crying in the happiness of being together. We're Jews, so we have to make everything sad and somber and tragic. And Rashi says, no, what were they crying about? Yosef is thinking about, you know, there's going to be two Batei Mikdash, they're going to be built in the territory of Binyamin, and Nebuch, they're going to be destroyed. So instead of thinking, wow, happy, reunited, amazing, it's like, right, Jews get together, are you excited? It's your grandchild's wedding, but my hip is killing me and my knee, and you should know what happened last week. Be happy. Why can't they just be happy? They're united, reunited after 22 years of alienation. Be happy, be thrilled. Cry from tears of joy. It's kind of bizarre. Instead of crying from happiness, 22 years after estrangement, they're crying for something which is not going to be built for a long time, let alone destroyed. So they're crying for the future, for something that's not even yet built? What's going on here? Rabbi Yisrael Taub, the first Majutzer Rebbe, Zatzal, and the Sefer Divri Yisrael, has a magnificent interpretation. He says, Yosef and Yaman, the only two sons of both Yaakov and Rachel, embraced and cried. It was, in fact, bittersweet tears. Why? After all, they were so thrilled to be reunited on the one hand. But at the moment that we were, they were reunited, what thought struck them? The realization of what had kept them apart. And what had kept them apart? Why were they separated? Why were they estranged? What was it? Two words? Sinas China. And at that moment that they realized, wow, the baseless hatred, the judgment, the marginalization, the rejection, the holier than thou, the competition that had caused this entire rift, true, we've healed it for the moment, but this quality, unfortunately, is going to continue beyond us. And in fact, the sinas chinam is not only going to continue, this animosity, this jealousy, this enmity among brothers is going to repeat itself again and again among our descendants. And they saw that this character trait, this intolerance, this judgmentalness, this dismissiveness is going to be the root of the destruction that's going to undermine our people. What it means that Yosef saw the two Batei Mikdash that will be destroyed, why were they destroyed? Because of sinas chinam. He knew that what he had just experienced, he wishes that he could bury it forever. Done. Solved. Cured. Healed. He wishes. But at that moment, there's a realization that he, it's not. It's just going to hibernate temporarily. And it's destined to rear its ugly head 
again. And when it does, the Jewish people will be exiled from our land. There'll be a horrific, horrific destruction of our, of our Batei Mikdash. I'm sharing that as an introduction to this section. Because understanding what went wrong with the brothers and understanding right now what goes right, maybe not fully right, but more right, is critical for our times to heal the sinas chinam in our times, which only continues, which only tragically continues. We absolutely bring about our own, we sabotage our own success. We get in our own way. The only time that we can do well is when we have shared enemies from the outside. And when the enemy from the outside is quiet, we find a way to kill one another from the inside. Tragic, tragic, tragic with judgment. If Steinman, the great Gadol, passed away last week, and I gave a drush, I spoke about how he was a great leader for all of Klai Yisrael, for the whole Torah community, whichever segment of the Torah community you consider yourself part of, we should all recognize when there is such a loss. You know, somebody sent me yesterday a poster that was hung in Israel, the faction who, not on the left, who thought Rav Steinman was too Haredi, but there's a faction of fanatics on the other side, who thought because Rav Steinman supported certain people to serve in the Haredi unit of the army, if they weren't cut out for learning, you should see this poster. Thank God the Russia is dead and dancing on his grave and unimaginable. And we wonder how there's no base on Mikdash. We wonder the different factions, the different groups, and the who's who, and so on and so forth. So I think the way that the reconciliation takes place here can be instructive and revealing for us in terms of the work that we have to do in our generation. We could point fingers at others. The Sinaschinim problem is the right. The Sinaschinim problem is the left. The Sinaschinim problem is there. It can only start with ourselves. We can't fix other people, we can only fix ourselves. If each of us is committed to behave and act in that way, in the proper way to heal the problem, then please God, the problem can be fixed. So let's go back. Vayigashem love Yehuda. Yehuda approaches, Yehuda approaches Yosef. Yehuda approaches Yosef. How does he approach him? How does he approach him? Go back to the very beginning of the parsha, page two fifty. Vayigashem love Yehuda. Vayomer. I'm not going to say my favorite Dvar Torah. The three times Vayigash, the three steps. You know, Yehuda shows the courage, and he comes for, and he comes forward. What is Yehuda's intention when he comes forward? What, by the way, might have led Yehuda to come forward more than any of the other brothers? What did Yehuda understand about, about his father's pain that no one else understood? The Lev Eliyahu explains, Lev Eliyahu explains that Yehuda was able to feel something for his father that none of the other brothers could feel. You know what that's called? Empathy. Everyone else felt sympathy. Yehuda felt empathy. What's the difference between sympathy and empathy? I refer to a, you to a brilliant talk at the Women's Health and Halacha Day. By yours truly. Just joking, not so brilliant. But it was about how to be a good friend to a friend in crisis. You can listen on Wai Torah. And we quoted the, uh, we showed the researcher of Dr. Brene Brown. The difference between sympathy and empathy. Sympathy is, I see your pain. I identify it. I feel bad that you're going through it. I wish I could relieve you of it but you're there and I'm here. Right? The image that she has in this amazing video is, you feel dark, you feel that you're down in a dark dungeon, suffering, in pain, lonely. Sympathy is, I look at the hole down to the dungeon and I call out, wow, it looks cold and dark and painful down there. My heart goes out to you, I'm so sorry you're suffering. Empathy is you climb down the ladder and sit next to the person in the dungeon. That's empathy. Why is Yehuda capable of feeling empathy for his father, Yaakov, when the brothers are not? Because Yehuda had lost his wife. He knew pain and tears. For 22 years, he suffered greatly. His wife died, as did his two sons. Tamar's daughter-in-law, was stranded, like an aguna, desperate to have children and continue a name, unable to. He erroneously sentenced her to death, publicly had to declare his mistake, he understood, he buried two children. He understood Yaakov's pain that Yosef was missing, Shimon was missing, and now Binyamin is missing. All the other brothers felt sympathy, and sympathy only takes you so far. Empathy gives you the courage to stand up and confront 
and make a difference. And that's exactly what Yehuda is willing to do. Rabbeinu Bachya says, the word Vayigash can mean three things. But this is not, usually we go through the Mephoshim and the Chumash, I'm going to tell you a lot of things on the outside today. Rabbeinu Bachya writes in Pasuk Memdalad, in Perak Memdalad, Pasuk Girches, Rabbeinu, yeah, it's not in your Mikros Kedolos, Rabbeinu Bachya writes, Matzinu Lashon Hagasha, Mishaneshes L'shloshet Dvarim. We find the word Vayigash to approach can connote three different things. Din, Upius, Umilchama. It can mean three things. It can mean justice, to appease, or to fight. War, military, confrontation. And Rabbeinu Bachya quotes the Psukim that show that the word Vayigash, Hagasha, is used in all three contexts. What that means to say is that when Yehuda stepped forward, he wasn't sure what he was going to do. He knew he had to confront this leader. He knew there was no way. His empathy drove him. There was no way he could go back without Binyamin. But he didn't know how he was going to do it. Would it be with Din, Pius, or Mechama? What would it take? Fighting for justice? Smooth talking? Persuading? Appeasing him? Or Mechama? He was ready for a fist fight. He was ready to risk his life. He knew he couldn't go back without the brother, but he didn't know what it would take and he was prepared to do whichever one, ultimately, it was going to take. Whichever one it would be. What were Yehuda and Yosef arguing about? So at first glance, what they're arguing about is Benjamin. You understand, for for Yosef, everything is orchestrated exactly. The Ramban understands this entire episode because it's very hard. Yosef, what is he, cruel? His, bro- his own brothers, his own flesh and blood, no matter what their history is, to play this charade, to put on this act, why is he not revealing himself? And doesn't he want to see his father again? It's a complicated sugya. We've shared before Rav Yoel Nun's interpretation. Yosef remains suspicious that his father was part of the whole plot. Why would he be suspicious his father was part of the plot? Who sent him out to go find the brothers when they kidnapped him and sold him? His father. And would it be unusual in their family narrative for his father to have done that? He knew where he came from. He knew that Avraham, he knew that his great-grandfather had kicked out his great-uncle Yishmael. He knew that his grandfather Yitzchak had kicked out his son Esav. And what he was learning is, in the birth of this Jewish people, in the birth of this new nation, every generation has the chosen one and the rejected one. So it made sense. Avram chose Yitzhak, rejected Yishmael. Yitzhak chose Yaakov, rejected Esav. My father, I guess I'm the Yishmael. I'm the Esav. And what only validated that fear? His father's the one who sent him out. Why would his father send him out? So Yosef sits there, still not knowing if his father was part of orchestrating this entire thing. But the Ramban assumes that Yosef is trying to bring his dream to a reality. He's trying to orchestrate things to this incredible extent. In fact, the Meshachachma writes on our parsha that Yosef's original plan was to get Yaakov down to Egypt before he would reveal himself. The fact that he couldn't hold himself back anymore, the Meshachachma says, what does it mean? What was he holding himself back from? Maybe this was the time to reveal himself. Why was he trying to hold himself back? Says Rameir Simcha Dvins, the Meshachachma, he was holding himself back because his original plan was to get Yaakov down to Egypt too before he revealed himself, the big reveal. Why? Says the Meshachachma, along the lines of the Ramban, he was trying to make his dreams come true. Who in his dream, in addition to the 11 stars that were bowing down, who else was bowing down? Sun, the moon. Yaakov also was bowing down. He was bringing everyone down to fulfill God's vision for what was supposed to be with his family. That which he couldn't restrain himself, he couldn't hold back anymore, was even before Yaakov came down, he couldn't see it all the way through. He couldn't see it all the way through. So the simple understanding of the text is that there's this battle over Binyamin. Even simpler understanding of the text is Yosef wants to forgive his brothers, but he can't forgive them until he sees what about them? Have they changed? Have they grown? Are they the same? Will they do this again? And how does he test them to see? What is the perfect test? By holding back Binyamin, Binyamin is the closest to Yosef. They have the same mother. 
So by holding back Binyamin and seeing, will they abandon him in the pit the way they abandoned me in the pit and walked away? Will they move on or will they step up? Will they advocate? Will they fight for a brother? And when Yehuda is willing to fight for a brother, that's when Yosef can't hold himself back anymore. That's when Yosef reveals himself. So at the simplest level, this is a story of sibling rivalry. And the one brother is able to forgive the others when he sees they've grown. How will he know if they grew? Let me ask you this. If when the brothers first arrived in Egypt, Yosef said, Whoa, get out of here, Reuben, Shimon, Levi. I haven't seen you in 22 years. How are you? It's me, Yosef. Do me a favor. Just, I have the food. You'll survive. Just apologize. Just, just say you're sorry. Let me feel that you feel bad about what happened. It all worked out okay, but just say something. Would the brother, of course the brother's first thing would be, we're so sorry. It would be sorry because they see what they've done to their father. They'd be sorry because they're hungry. And the only way they're going to have access to the shmorg is if they first say they're sorry to the bala shmorg. Of course they would apologize. Yosef would have forever remained suspicious of that apology. How sincere could that apology be? The only way, Yosef is orchestrating what the Rambam calls tshuva gemurah. What is tshuva gemurah? To be in the exact same scenario, in the exact same circumstance, and to choose a different outcome. The Rambam writes it very graphically. The Rambam says a man who acted inappropriately with a woman who wasn't his wife, had an illicit relationship, and wants to do tshuva, the only way to do tshuva gemurah, says the Rambam, is to be alone in a room with a woman who is as equally beautiful, and he has to be, has the same vigor as when he originally perpetrated that indiscretion, and he chooses not to violate it. There's a classic question. If you do tshuva properly, you can never do tshuva gemurah, because tshuva means that you don't allow yourself to be back in the same circumstance in which you were tempted to begin with. So if you do tshuva properly, you can never do tshuva gemurah. But we'll talk about that next Elul. For our purposes, for our purposes, the Rambam says, what's tshuva gemurah? The greatest test of how sincere you are in your personal growth is back in the exact same situation, did you act differently? Yosef orchestrates and choreographs the exact same situation. And they rise to the occasion. Not so much they, they ride the coattails of Yehuda who rises to the occasion. And that's when Yosef is ready to reconcile. So the simplest story level, it's a story of sibling rivalry and reconciliation. At a higher level, it's Yosef coordinating events to fulfill the dream, the prophecy, the vision that God had created had created for him. Even more so. Even more so. There was a reason I was telling you all this. What was I getting at? Oh, sorry. Another level. The debate, the machlokas, between Yosef and Yehuda goes even further. Last week we talked about, or two weeks ago, lo yachlul dabro shalom. they couldn't even say shalom aleichem to one another. Here comes the dreamer. They wouldn't even use his name. They had become the other. There was such hatred and animosity. They were the other. They couldn't tolerate being in a room together. So we can dismiss it as sibling rivalry, but these were great, great people. Could they possibly have been arguing and debating about something more? So the Rav said yes. Rabbi Salavechik, in a talk he gave called Vision and Leadership, suggested that the clash and confrontation between Yehuda and Yosef is not a petty power struggle between two brothers, but it's a profound battle for the future leadership of the Jewish people. This is an adolescent people, a fledgling nation. And Yosef and Yehuda are each vying for leadership. Not ego-driven, but they're vying for the template, the model of what Jewish leadership needs to look like. What is Jewish leadership all about? Yehuda and Yosef represent two paradigms or archetypes of leadership, said the Rav. The Rambam says, there are two types of righteous people. They're what he calls the chassid. The chassid is someone who has no inclination for anything wrong. They woke up in the morning, and all they want to do is what's right. They don't struggle with temptation. They're humble, instinctively kind. They don't have desire. They're essentially born righteous, and they always make the right decision. 
But says the Rambam, there's a second type of tzaddik. And the second type of righteous person is the person who's called Kovesh as Yitro. The second type of righteous person is the one who battles and who struggles and who fights to do the right thing. They live with temptations and urges. And you know what? Sometimes they lose the battle. But they remain committed to win the war. And the Rav has suggested that Yosef represents the Chassid. He's like Moshe. We don't find him succumbing to temptation or making the wrong decision. He's tempted. The wife of Potiphar throws everything she's got at him. But he does the right thing. He doesn't stumble. He's called Yosef at Tzaddik. His righteousness comes naturally. But Yehuda's life is characterized by wrestling and battling. The story with Tamar is a very low moment. He fell. In fact, the text describes Vayered Yehuda that he went down, he fell. But you know what he does? He picks himself up. He says those iconic words, Sadka Mimene, you're more righteous than I. And he's Kovacious Yitzro. He conquers his demons and he gets himself back on the right path towards greatness. He has the courage to admit when he's wrong, to express shame and regret, and to commit to begin to do what's right. And said the Rav, the debate between Yosef and Yehuda is, who makes the better Jewish leader? The perfect, righteous, no temptation, or the one who struggles and battles and picks himself up, who may lose a battle but seeks to win the war? <laughs> Who's right? Yosef says, it's the chassid version of the tzaddik. It's the one who's perfect. We want the leader who's the closest to perfection. And Yehuda says, we want the leader who the people can relate to. We want the leader who's accessible, who's a role model, who's an inspiration. We need a leader who's able to be human, who's able to fail, who's able to have faults. Which is the model that we go with? Who wins in this battle between Yehuda and Yosef? Says the Rav, you know who wins? Who gets the monarchy? Will Yasur shave at me? Yehuda. Yehuda is the progenitor of the monarchy. It's his progeny who are chosen as Jewish royalty, not Yosef. And Judaism is teaching an incredible lesson, said the Rav. And the lesson is that leadership is not about perfection. Leadership is about being human. And we should recognize within our own leaders, they're fallible, they're relatable, their stories resonate for us. And we have to allow for their failures as long as they admit it and apologize for it and recommit to becoming great. You know, the Rav's great nephew, my buddy, Rabbi Dr. Meir Salavechik, has a beautiful article where he talks about this debate between Yehuda and Yosef and the victory of Yehuda's philosophy over Yosef shows itself very poignantly in the story of Mashiach, particularly the contrast between our approach and the approach of Christianity. Right? There's a certain holiday being celebrated by some. Their idea of their Messiah is somebody who is perfect, born in perfect circumstances, and only through them, belief in that individual, through him, could one experience redemption. Ours is exactly the opposite. Right? In Christianity, man is utterly unworthy, unredeemable, and that their false Messiah has to come and compensate for. In our belief, we have belief what? That... I believe he's going to come. When does Mashiach come? When we're worthy of his arrival. We have to bring him. It's up to us. That's why in Christianity, since human beings are utterly unworthy and irredeemable, their Messiah has to be pure and untainted, immaculate conception, born of no sin. How's our Mashiach's yichus? Exactly the opposite. Yehuda and Tamar, Rus, Lot and his daughter, David and his complicated relationship with Bacheva. Our Mashiach's Yichus is riddled, riddled with scandalous affairs and salaciousness, and that's, that's where he comes from. And so, th- this is what he writes. He says, quote, The debate over whether Jesus was the Messiah is therefore also an argument about the inherent ability of man. For Christians, repentance is impossible if the Messiah has not yet come. For Jews, the Messiah cannot come if repentance has not yet occurred. Christians proclaim the coming. Jews, often under the pain of persecution, continue to insist the Messiah had not yet come because it was up to us to bring him. And that's this debate between Yehuda and Yosef, a third level, yet another level 
of what's going on. So what happens with the big reveal? This is really what I wanted to get to, so it's good that we have a minute left. This is what I wanted to get to. Yosef reveals himself to his brothers, and he says, Yosef Wow! What a musr shmuz! Chazal tell us, wow! In the Yalkut, on Vayigash. Boy, did Yosef knock him between the eyes. Boy, did he hit him over the head. What a shmuz shmuz! What did he say? In those words, Ani Yosef ha'od avichai. I am Joseph, is my father still alive? The rebuke was so harsh, so strong. That's what it's going to be like for us when we get upstairs. The rabbi said on Yom Kippur, we, meeting our creator, have to fear the level of harshness that Yosef endured. Where's, this, where's the Musashmus? Where's the rebuke? Where's the hit over the head? What did he say that was so powerful? What's going on over here? What's going on over here? So, there's a number of different interpretations of what's happening. The Nitziv says, the Amagdavar says, that the words Saud Avichai was the rebuke. My father, not our father. Knowing how much our father loved me, you must have known the pain you were going to cause him. What did Yehuda just tell him? How could you do this to our father? You can't do this. You can't send me back without Binyamin. It'll kill him. What does Yosef say? You're so worried about your father? What about my father? Where was the father who loved me? Didn't you know what you were going to do to him by getting rid of me? What is the greatest rebuke when we're called out for our hypocrisy? When we're called out for our duplicitousness? When we are revealed as a fake, as a phony? Does it get harsher than that? So says the Nitziv, you know what the tochacha, the rebuke was? You claim to care about your father? What about my father? You're a fake. You're a phony. You're a fraud. You're a liar. You're a hypocrite. Now you know what the beauty of the tochacha was? Yosef didn't say any of that. You know what the most powerful tochacha is? My, when I was a child, and even more recently, but when I was a child, I wasn't scared if my father raised his voice at me. The most scared I was was when my father talked very softly or didn't talk at all, just looked at me with the greatest look of disappointment. Is there a stronger... Sometimes the louder you scream, the less impactful or strong that tochacha is. Ma, you never yelled at me. You were always very good to me. So the louder the scream... Ah, you can blow it off. Yosef doesn't scream at his brothers. He doesn't need to. He doesn't need to. The reality. So the first understanding of how harsh the rebuke is, is then it's Siv. And then it's Siv says, you know, when we are revealed, when we are revealed, the emperor is naked, that we're a fake and a phony and a fraud, that we claim to care about this, but our behavior over there proves that we're lying when we say we care about this. You care about your father? What about Auda Vichai? What about my father? Second understanding of the harshness of the rebuke is, my wife once called me. She'd been pulled over, she got a speeding ticket. So years ago, years ago, and she probably wasn't speeding, the policeman was at, at fault. <laughs> anyway, she calls me, she says, I'm waiting, he's bad, but I just got pulled over, there's a police car behind me, he's got my license, he's writing up my ticket, I can't believe this. So I started to go, I can't believe you got a ticket, why are you driving so fast? You know what the ticket costs and the points and the insurance? There's dead silence for a minute. Then she says to me, she says, Ephraim, do you think I called you because I needed you to tell me what a mistake it was to be speeding? <laughs> I look in my rear view mirror and the lights that are going behind me, I got it. I got it. I didn't call you for that. I called you so you'd say, oh, it's terrible. I hate when that happens. That's so annoying. I'm so sorry. There's a big lesson about marriage in that story. <laughs> But there's also a big lesson about that sometimes when you confront the reality of the situation you created, nobody needs to say anything. Yosef says, I'm Yosef. Remember 22 years, he threw me in the pit, he got rid of me, our father's been suffering. I'm Yosef, is my father still alive? And then he sits back. And he doesn't have to say anything more. 
And he doesn't have to raise his voice and he doesn't have to scream because the reality of the situation that we created is the biggest tochacha. They say that when we get upstairs, Hashem is just going to press play on a video of our life. And our having to sit with God while watching a video of the decisions we made in our behavior, that's the greatest punishment. The humiliation, the shame, the regret, that is the biggest punishment there is. So when Yosef reveals himself, I'm Yosef, he doesn't have to say more. He doesn't have to raise his voice, he doesn't have to scream, he doesn't have to yell, he doesn't have to point a finger. Chaim Shmolevitz, the great Rosh Hashiva of the Mir and Esichos Musar, has another interpretation which I find unbelievably powerful. What happens right away? You know where the Musar is. We didn't get into, I told you we were going to get into why he couldn't hold himself back anymore. I guess we'll save that for next year. But you know what the Musar is, says Chaim Shmolevitz? What does he do right after he reveals himself? He hugs and he cries and he loves them. He doesn't say, look at what you did. How could you do this to me? You know what he says? After all you've done, I remain your brother. I have no intent of exerting my power over you. In fact, I want you to know I love you, the perpetrators of this crime against me, as much as I love Binyamin, the one who had nothing to do with it. And then he hugs and kisses each of the brothers. That's an unbelievable rebuke. You know what the rebuke is? He rebukes them with his actions. By modeling the right way that brothers should treat a brother, he shows them just how wrong they had treated a brother. By saying, despite what you've done to me, despite what you've done to me, and this is the message I want to say to you about Sinas Chinam, despite your hating me, I only love you more. Because you're my brother. And if Yosef could forgive and love his brothers after being thrown in a pit and sold into slavery then we can love our brothers, even if they're different or they make different choices than we do. What was the musr, the rebuke? The rebuke was that Yosef modeled the way one brother should in fact treat another brother, the proper way to treat another brother. And what do they do? How do the brothers react? Now they talk. To me, these words, is the antidote to what we saw two weeks ago. Two weeks ago, they couldn't be in a room, they couldn't talk. They couldn't even schmooze about the weather or about the worst call of football history so the Patriots stole a game again. They couldn't even talk about things that they had in common. I don't know if any of you saw the clip of, uh, what's her name, Megan McCain, talking with Joe Biden, Joe Biden comforting her about her father's illness because he lost his son to the same illness. Any of you see this? Here you have two people who politically are polar opposites and who both can dish their fair share of rhetoric, who probably couldn't be in a room together. What enabled them to connect tragically is illness, is horrific illness. And that common ground enabled them to comfort, to cry, to connect. So the brothers, they couldn't even say Shalom Aleichem, they couldn't talk even about the things they had in common, even about illness, sports, the weather. They couldn't connect about anything. And when Yosef shows, despite what you did to me, I will show love for you as much as for Binyamin, now the brothers reciprocate. Now, Dibru Echav Ito. Now they're able to talk. Now they're able to connect once again. And I leave you with a thought of Rav Yeruchim. Rav Yeruchim quotes the Orchas Chaim of the Rush, who says, what we see from Yosef's behavior is a very powerful lesson. That when someone has hurt us, Rather than seek to take revenge against them, we should be even more gracious to them. This is based on the Sefer Achinach. Sefer Achinach says, with this I promise I close, Sefer Achinach says that if you realize that whatever happens in our lives, what does Yosef say to the brothers? The brothers say, you're not going to hurt us, you're not going to kill us, you're not going to take us down. And Yosef says, what do you think? You're the one who got me to Egypt? It's part of Hashem's master plan. You were a puppet, you were an instrument. What you did was wrong and it hurt me. And I'm, I'm, I feel bad you did it. And you should ask for forgiveness. And I'll say, I'm, I, I forgive you. But don't think that you got me here. This is part of God's plan. Sefer HaKhanach says, when someone hurts us, we should never make the arrogant mistake of thinking that that person was in the position to have hurt us. They couldn't have created that reality unless it was Hashem's will. If we live with Amunah and Bitachon and Vekas, we have to realize Hashem brought about that reality. 
they were the instruments, so we should hold them accountable. But if we take revenge, we're denying that God is the one who created this circumstance. Yosef realizes that Hashem is the one who brought him down to Egypt. And because he lives with that level of amuna, because he lives with that bitachon, that everything in his life is from Hashem, he's able to turn to the brothers and instead of seeking revenge, to act with even greater graciousness to them. When people ask forgiveness from us, when they've hurt us, don't seek revenge. Don't stand on ceremony. Be overly gracious. Kill them with kindness. Love them even more. Why? Because in the words of Sikhus Musar, model the way they should have been behaving towards you. The greatest rebuke is to show them the way a brother treats another brother. And because it's an expression of Amuna and Bitachon, to realize that really it's all from Hashem. Friedrich and Hanukkah.